All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this honor and privilege of gathering together as your family on this earth. We thank you for separating us from the world, sanctifying us by your word, and giving us your Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us. Most of all, Father, we thank you for your Son. Help us never become familiar with the fact that you gave him up and even put him to death for our benefit, judging him for the sins of the whole world so we could be set free by faith in him. Please bless this message. Guide us by your Spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, once again, hindering God's love means hindering your sanctification, part three. Uh, we'll see how far this goes. Um, as you know, I have Tuesday evenings now, so we might make this a five-part series. We'll see where the Spirit takes us, but it'll at least go through Sunday, if not Tuesday. And this topic, obviously, is a very important topic. Um, hindering God's love is a very serious issue in our life as believers. And I hope you're all concentrating the best you can listening again maybe if you need to, and more importantly, synthesizing these principles at home because this is like real-life stuff that only you can apply to your own life. Only you can reconcile things. Some, some might be deep soul issues. And uh, I hope you're humbly giving the Spirit the opportunity to um, open your eyes to things if they need to be opened in this area, if you're willing as uh, the saying goes. And that leads me to start off with this point, which has come out the last couple messages. What motivates faith? The greater a person's love for God, the more willingly humble he will walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.14, we went to a couple times where the love of Christ is what motivates us. The more of God's love you understand, the more love you'll have back for Him, and the more willingly humble you'll walk by faith. So love certainly is the greatest motivation uh, that anyone can live by. That's what makes people do what they do. That's what make, made the apostles die martyrs' deaths. Obviously, that's what made the Lord go to the cross for us. So the more we learn about God's love for us, and the more we receive His love, the greater opportunity we have to pass it on to others. And we've been discussing getting in the way and how we hinder the free flow of God's love. As in our river analogy, don't hold up the wooden plank, even in the face of those who hurt you, even especially in the face of those who hurt you, because they're the ones who need to see God's love the most. And as we've seen by now, it's to your own detriment if you choose to hold up that wooden plank, you know, pushing against God's love from flowing through you to other people. So we've been talking a lot about when we get in the way. We get selfish with God's grace. And we don't actively say this. It's for me and my benefit alone. But we do it. We can do it, and uh, we have to be alert to it. 
And when we do that, we slow down the powerful flow of his love through us. It's meant to go blasting right through us, in us, through us, like with full force. And um, there's nothing like freely given love, is there? There's nothing like unconditional love, truly unconditional love. And that's what we have the privilege of allowing to flow through us. And we therefore, we slow down experiencing and enjoying our sanctification if we get selfish with God's grace and love. We therefore slow down experiencing and enjoying our sanctification. Our Heavenly Father wants us to enjoy the ride while we run the race for Him. He really wants us to enjoy the ride, to be at peace. There's a supernatural joy He gives us, but it can only be experienced when we get out of the way. And that can only come through humility. And when we humbly enjoy His love, and in humility desire to share it, our faith walk gets much easier. Again, when we humbly enjoy His love, and in humility desire to share it, our faith walk gets much easier. You know, love overcomes everything. Love never fails, the scripture says. So that means if you're living in that sphere of love, everything else is going to become much easier. You might even be able to overlook things you could never overlook before because you're in the sphere of love. Love never fails. Your faith walk will be much easier if you humbly receive His love and desire to pass it on. The Spirit also gave this on Tuesday, courtesy of Frank, regarding the faith of a child. I trust you, Lord, and I'm not going to question you anymore. That's how much I trust you. That type of pure faith, unquestioning faith, is mature, as we went over this for a few lessons a while ago, didn't we? Maturity is actually seen in the faith of a child. It's mature when you can say this on the board. To the world, it, fe- it seems childish, right? It seems like blind faith. But in God's eyes, it is the most pure, mature, wonderful thing that he can see from a believer. And it's love that motivates this type of faith. It's knowing God's love for you. It's um, loving Him back. The more, the more you receive His love, the more you understand it and believe it, the more you're able to love Him back. So love motivates this type of faith on the board. When you know, if you're 100% convinced that God loves you unconditionally, this is easy to say. I trust you and I'm not going to even question you. Why? Because you know He loves you with a perfect love. So again, once again, love motivates faith. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing, and we just need to, as we grow, continue to pray that God reveals it to us because we all go through these struggles where we lose faith at times, we um, doubt God's love for us, and um, we need to pray for increased faith which we'll see later on as well. But believing His love for you can humble you so much, it can set you free, free enough to forgive others who hurt you from the heart. Again, love never fails. It can conquer everything. 
So it's then that you can enjoy the freedom that God has meant for you to enjoy. So may we appropriate to our own lives the power of God's love. May we appropriate to our own lives the power of God's love. It's love that changes people. And it's lack of love that makes ourselves and others suffer needlessly. It's the third time I think we've been seeing this point. And I think we can't overlook it because we, I, I already know that, you know. I know God's love is powerful. Have you appropriated that? Have you um, believed it, for lack of a better word? God's love is so powerful it can change a murderer into an apostle, right? And remember the example I gave on Tuesday about the young evangelist who went into a hostile village. And when they threatened his life, he left out of fear, but then he came back and just poured out the love of Christ, saying, I, uh, you know, I want you to be saved. You don't understand the situation. And he started a church in that hostile village. The love changed the lives of those who were threatening him. The love of Christ did that. So we've seen that obeying the command to love your neighbor as yourself is a big part of allowing God's love to flow through you. And we also saw the next step in godly thinking on Tuesday. A lawyer tested Jesus with a question in Luke chapter 10 in hopes of limiting the number of people he was required to love. The lawyer said to Jesus, who is, who is my neighbor? Through the story of the Samaritan, the Lord revealed his neighbor could even be a stranger. And then for instructions, the Lord said this on the board regarding loving your neighbor. Be a neighbor. Don't ask who your neighbor is. That's the wrong question. Be a neighbor. In Luke 10, 36. We see this on the board. Jesus said to the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Proved to be a neighbor. Jesus never directly answered his question, who is my neighbor? The illustration shows us it can even be a stranger, right, on the side of the road. But Jesus didn't directly answer his question. Here's the point. Who proved to be a neighbor? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Pretty simple. Pretty simple, the Lord's commands of us. Go and do the same. It didn't matter who the person was that was in need. It wasn't even the Samaritan, uh, or it wasn't even somebody the Samaritan knew when he stopped and helped that man. So instead of worrying about who qualifies as a neighbor, we should focus on being a neighbor. That's how we can love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we do that, if we truly love our neighbors as, our, as we love ourselves, we're going to bring glory to God in our lives in a marvelous way. Remember the Spirit's emphasis recently on being the right person over the last few months as part of sanctification. Being who God made you to be in the new man. Living in that. And we brought up this old point from March, a lesson in March, on living the spiritual life. Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regimen. It's an attitude. It's a state of being. It's the condition of your soul. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. And we sense His presence in everything. 
if we just be sometimes. Just be in Christ. Be sanctified. Be in the sphere of love. Stop fighting against it with your flesh. Just as powerfully as you want God's love to flow to you because you do love yourself, that's how powerfully God wants you to let it flow to others around you, even if they're not your people. Even if they're not your type of person. Samaritan and Jew. Enemies. They hated each other back in Jesus' day. Doesn't matter if it's your own people or not. God wants you to let it flow to others that He puts in your life, by the way. He puts in your path. Who's your neighbor? Could be anybody that He puts in your path, like the Samaritan when he was walking by and saw the man beaten. And maybe, just maybe, it should especially be if it's not our own people. We should especially let God's love flow to those not our own people. So we talked about flowing freely. God's love is a passionate river, and we are to stand in its path with open arms to receive it and to let it flow through us to others, uninterrupted and unhindered. It's a good visual aid. You know, you might, you might find yourself on a river one day. Just try it. You know, get some alone time with God. Go feel the current. Go feel how strong it is. Go feel how constant it is. What a great analogy for God's love. Because God's love never gives up. It's just constant. So again, God's love is like a passionate river. And we're to stand in its path with open arms to receive it. We like that part. But we're also to let it flow through us to others without any hindrance. So we've seen one main passage so far that illustrates God's love and its potential godly flow in us. And this all depends on our humility and submission to God's ways and our willingness to get out of the way. We talked about forgiving our brother. And if our attitude is, Lord, do I have to forgive this person? You're asking the wrong question. It may be a serious situation that, you know, at least in, in, in human eyes, we could say, yeah, that's a tough one to forgive that person, right? But that's the wrong question of God. Maybe it should be, Lord, I want to obey you. I'm having trouble with this. How do I forgive this person? How do I forgive this person? And let him open your eyes. If we do choose to forgive others, despite our personal pain, then we are being humble. We're obeying his commands and operating in his love. We're letting it flow. And we're the ones that are set free in the process. It's like carrying a weight. When you're carrying a weight on your back all day long, you're, gonna, you're just going to exhaust yourself. When God's saying, just drop the weight. Drop it. Stop it. There's a, a freedom He wants us to enjoy. So we've been talking about hindering sanctification, how this does hinder sanctification, your own growth, your own freedom. Do you want the benefits of God's love and then want to, be, want to hold back those same benefits from other people in your life? I know in your new nature you say, no, of course not. But in your flesh, you might say this, you want to hold back just a little bit anyway. 
And if we're honest, we do it, especially when we've been hurt. But we need to get over ourselves. It's not about us. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. When you, when you think, um, you know, you deserve to be treated better and you're hurt, you're really looking at yourself a little more highly than you ought to look at yourself. And Jesus went through this, and he was perfect. If anyone had the right to say, I don't deserve to be hurt in this way, it was him. Arguably, we deserve to be hurt. <laughs> we deserve a lot of things in life. But regardless, we need to be in the new nature and not in the old nature so we can let the benefits of his love flow just as we've received them so you know, zealously and uh, humbly. We should let that flow and watch others be set free too. And your enemy could end up being your best friend. So if you do hold back this type of forgiveness, be on guard, as we've seen in our main passage. Go again to Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. We'll give this one more read tonight. And remember, as we're reading this, God's ways are not our ways. Turn to His ways. Until we humble ourselves, we're going to continue suffering in our own soul. Matthew eighteen twenty one. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. You can see the humility, right? Prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out, the same slave that was just begging for mercy on his knees, and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And this, again, is an ugly word, folks. It, it really, think of a hard heart. Unwilling. After you've been forgiven, to be unwilling, that's an ugly spiritual situation. He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you 
if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So there are several things to take note of, starting with this fact on the board. Forgiveness and mercy allows God's love to flow through us. And when we bottle it up, it is evil in God's sight. It's that simple. When we bottle it up, it is evil in God's sight. Notice how it should have gone straight from the Lord to the slave to the other slave. The guy shouldn't have even thought about it, right? Considering what he was just forgiven, and then his fellow slave owes him money, he should have just passed that right on, especially because it wasn't even close financially to the debt he owed. But yet he was unwilling. When we hold it back from others, we damage our own soul and we hinder His flow of mercy from reaching other people, which is really a shame. Even though we just received it from God, even though we didn't deserve it, and yet we hinder His mercy from reaching other people. Pretty disgusting to be an ungrateful, unforgiving slave like this guy. But that's what we do if we listen to the flesh. We've gathered a couple key points from the Spirit over the last couple lessons. One from this passage, that we are accountable to the Father. This is so serious to God the Father that Jesus says, whoever does not forgive his brother from the heart will be disciplined so severely by the Father that it's like being handed over to torturers. You know, something we as grace believers don't want to read. But God's serious. And God surely knows how to discipline, especially when we're that out of line. Discipline from God is something we should expect from our Heavenly Father when we disobey His ways of love. Again, God's ways are not our ways. His ways of love are totally different. And that's why we're saved. Because His love is so extreme. And even though we're 100% guilty, His love is so extreme, He overlooked the whole debt. So in love, God's going to wake us up if we act like this slave. And he will discipline us quite harshly if necessary. This parable is another reminder that God looks at the heart. Jesus said, forgive your brother from your heart. God looks at the heart in all of his dealings with mankind. Another point in our study came up on Tuesday. Are we living in pretense? You can't pretend to forgive your brother and harbor bitterness without God knowing it. It's really so silly if you think about trying to fool our all-knowing Father. You can't pretend to forgive your brother or act like it and yet have bitterness in your soul without God knowing it. So if you struggle with this, or even when you struggle with this, Go to your father right away. Go straight to him when you lack the proper attitude on any issue. We must go ask him for more faith because that's the issue when we resist his instructions. For example, when we don't forgive somebody. We must get on our knees and ask him for help right then, for supernatural help for giving our brother from from the heart. Ask the right question. How do I forgive this person? 
I hope, again, you see the sense of urgency here. The Spirit's been making an issue out of this. Don't ignore the Spirit's convictions in your good conscience. If something's bothering you, if someone's bothering you, and you haven't gone to them and talked it out, you need to. If that's on your conscience, you need to just do it. And do it in love, do it in gentleness, and get it all you know, out on the table. And then repent and forgive. Whoever needs to repent, repent. Whoever needs to forgive, forgive. And you're done. And you're in a place of freedom. And you can go forward together as brothers. But if you wait, if you continue to let things like this fester, you're going to stop the flow of God's love in your life, maybe to never return in your life again experientially. You can develop such a hard heart against somebody, especially when you're really hurt. You can develop such a hard heart that you don't ever repent of that hard heart even and that lack of forgiveness. And God might even decide to take you home early one day. Who knows? And one thing is for sure, your life will not be bringing Him glory in that area. So it really is an urgent matter. And there aren't many things in life that are truly urgent, but this is one of them. As seen by the way God's willing to discipline us if we don't forgive. After all, it's His love we are stopping the flow of. How can we be possessive with His love? We obviously have no right to mess with that whatsoever. And that, after He freely poured all of that love out on us in mercy, just like the slave was forgiven this unpayable debt. So may it never be that we get in the way of this. It is very serious to God. Being told to forgive our brother from the heart, we also saw some verses about how God considers the heart in everything that man does. On the board, we saw Proverbs 21, 1 through 2. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. A lot to think about in that one. In Jeremiah 3, verse 10, in the NIV, we saw, In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister, Judah, did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. What was God looking for in this passage? He was looking for Judah to repent with all of her heart. Not halfway, not in pretense, not going through the proper motions, but having bitterness in the heart. Judah wouldn't do it. Judah played the part, acted like she wanted to return to God, but didn't truly. And that's a picture of us believers and our souls at times. So we can pretend to forgive our brother in pretense, but God knows the heart. So the message has been, forgive your brother from your heart. Not halfway. (laughs) Forgive your brother from your heart. Go to James chapter 3 again. Take another look at this passage. James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? 
Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, such as forgiveness, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't that what forgiveness is? Making peace? And that is the wisdom from above in verse 17. So where do we harbor bitterness? If we harbor bitterness, it's in our hearts. Look again at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. So again, it's a heart issue, like many other things in the Bible. When we don't forgive others, we allow bitterness to fester in our own hearts. And it makes us sick. Even the Old Testament says jealousy gives you cancer of the bones. It literally can make you sick, first in your soul and then even in your body. That's what happens when we don't forgive others and we hold on to bitterness. And again, let's look at James 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee to you, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our hearts are not pure when we hold back forgiveness because we're holding back God's love. It's the furthest thing from being pure. So on the board, regarding forgiveness and the heart, God knows the heart. And whether we are truly surrendering or we're pretending and holding grudges, God knows the heart. So let's repent from the heart if we need to. Let's stop playing games, stop convincing ourselves that we've forgiven somebody when we still have this thing in the back of our soul against them. Repent to God in humility and don't require God's discipline to come on you. We might summarize that forgiveness is a great example of allowing God's love to flow through us. Now a question comes up. How does this work? How does this act of forgiveness work? What's the right way to forgive somebody? What's the right timing even? And the proper procedure? Scripture actually tells us. It says forgiveness is a must if and when someone repents. Again, forgiveness is a must if and when someone repents. And that's even seen in Jesus' parable that we read in Matthew 18, where the king was going to sell off the slave, but then the slave repented, got on his knees and said, forgive my debt. 
And then the king had compassion on him and forgave him. So again, forgiveness is a must if and when somebody repents. Repentance is such an important process in the soul, not for the one doing the forgiving, but in the soul of the guilty party. It must be brought to a head, in other words. That person might not know it. They might willingly be rejecting they did anything wrong. Whatever the case, they need to come to a point of repentance for their own benefit. It's necessary for healing to take place. And that's why repentance is even necessary before salvation. And I love how God's bringing this all together. As um, I even had struggles in my own understanding of how repentance related to salvation. I, I didn't think it was necessary. You know, um, And we've been on this now for probably uh, close to a year. And how even repentance is part of the salvation process to get somebody to the point where they realize and submit to Christ. So think about God's forgiveness at salvation for a minute. Unless a person repents of their sinfulness, they won't turn in humility to Christ as Lord and Savior. And there's no applied forgiveness to that person. Even though their sins were paid for at the cross. Just think about that. Unless a person repents of their sinfulness, they're not going to turn to Christ as Savior. They're not going to believe in Him. And therefore, there's no applied forgiveness to that person. There can't be. Their free will must be honored. So even though their sins were paid for at the cross, there's no applied forgiveness to that person by God. So on the board regarding applying forgiveness, even though he died for the sins of the whole world, as it says in 1 John 2, 2, the Lord said, unless people believe in him, they will die in their sins. In John 8, 21 and 24. Again, even though he died for the sins of the whole world, including unbelievers, the Lord said, unless people believe in him, they will die in their sins. So let's just take a quick look at these verses. Go to 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. If people refuse God's offer, their free will is honored by God, and forgiveness will not be applied to them. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So there's no question Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, right? We have no question about that. There are other scriptures that imply the same. So how can it be that he died for the sins of the whole world and yet people can die in their sins? Go to John 8, verse 21. John 8, 21. It's because people reject the forgiveness, because people don't repent of their guilt. And therefore, God's not going to forgive them if they don't want to be forgiven. He honors their free will. John 8, 21. And here Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in context. 
Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Maybe this is why the Lord began his ministry in Mark 1 by saying, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. At least not applied to that individual person, as we're going to see. And Paul followed the same pattern in giving the gospel in Acts chapter 20. We've seen this a few times. Paul said, whether I preach the gospel to Jews or Gentiles, I preach repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So without repentance, there's no applied forgiveness. In love, we are to help others realize that they've sinned against us so they can come to a place of repentance in their own hearts. And this is how we have won our brother, even saving them from their own sin. On the board in Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. We are to take action, in other words, to help continue the flow of God's love, even though we're the innocent one. If we're the one that's been hurt by somebody else, we're to take action in humility and go to that person and make them aware of the situation. And do so in love. Reach out with God's love to those who fall. Restore them. Do your best to restore your relationship with them. Because it can be cleansed, 100%. But it takes humility. It doesn't take going to them and shoving it in their face. Saying, you know, you've sinned against me. You're a jerk. I can't believe you did this. You're stuck in all emotional. That's not the point. No, I told you so's. Go to them in gentleness. What did we just read in James 3, I think it was? Wisdom is gentleness. That's part of it. Divine wisdom includes gentleness. So we go to them in humility with hopes of truly restoring the broken relationship. The heart of God is to restore the broken. And so that's the heart we should be passing on. And think about it, he reached down to us, the guilty party, in gentleness. I mean, here we are deserving hell, rebelling against our perfect creator, sinning till the cows come home, if we add them all up from our childhood, and yet he reached down to us, even though we're the guilty party. He didn't say, I'm going to wait until you guys come up to me and say you're sorry. He came down to us and said, let me just show you what you've done. Let me show you your guilt. You need to understand this. And that gentleness is what leads us to him, right? That's what makes him so beautiful. Go to Luke chapter 17, verse 3. 
God reached down to us. Just amazing. Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, tell him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And then the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's always a good prayer. We're all going to need that one. But first we see in this passage, it's proper to rebuke your brother if he wrongs you. It's the right thing to do. And that's a show of love in itself. He may not realize his error. He may need to be woken up. And if he repents when you approach him or her, if he repents, forgive him. You must forgive him. And every time he repents, even seven times in a day, forgive him. And don't worry, eventually he'll get tired of it, committing the same sin over and over against you. There's got to be a limit. But in all seriousness, seek restoration. Help them repent if you can. Help them admit and see their, their sin against you and then immediately forgive them and accept them back. And you watch how, what a miraculous relationship can be like that comes from that. So on the board, we're talking about an attitude. Remember the spiritual life, it's an attitude, and it's being in Christ. We're talking about possessing this attitude of forgiveness. We have no right to hold back the limitless love of God as He forgave us without limits. We have no right to hold back His limitless love. And then, of course, we need to ask for more faith sometimes to do this to forgive, especially when it's a tough one. But it's an issue of faith. It's a lack of faith when we lack forgiveness. So do what the apostles did. Ask for more faith. And then regarding applying forgiveness, repentance is what triggers the act of forgiveness by the one who loves God. Repentance is what triggers the actual act of forgiveness to that person by the one who loves God. Go to Matthew 18, verse 26. Matthew 18, 26. Let's just read this again just to visually see in the parable how repentance happened before forgiveness. Matthew 18, 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. There's a visual of repentance. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So this goes right along with what the Lord said in Luke, uh, what was it, 17 we were just in? And as we've learned recently, parables are designed to make one or two main points or illustrations. We're not supposed to overread them or read into them. There's one or two main points. We have to be careful not to overexamine parables. And I think we've done a good job of keeping to the main point in this parable. But also it's important to keep our Lord's parables in context. We've learned that recently. 
Look at the context of the parable. Read before it, right? So this parable in Matthew 18 on forgiveness is preceded by some instructions on what to do when your brother sins against you. Just like we saw in Luke 17 a minute ago. So in keeping with context, look back to verse 15 in Matthew 18. This is right before this parable. Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Do you see how important it is to, if you love your brother, you're going to go to him and try to get him to listen. Try to get him to understand, even with two or three, even in front of the whole church if necessary. Why? He needs to repent. He needs to be set free from his own guiltiness. Right? That's what love does. And so the Lord says, here are the steps. Go to your brother, show him in private. If he listens, awesome. You've won your brother. If he doesn't, go with somebody else that was a witness that can also tell him this is what you did do. If he doesn't, go to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So that whole passage precedes verse 21, where Peter said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And then the Lord goes into the parable. So first, before the parable, the Lord gave instructions about approaching the brother who sins against you. How to do it. Why did he do this? In other words, why, why not just forgive the guilty party? Right? We should forgive, right? Pass on God's love. No strings attached. Unconditional. Forgive the person that hurt you. But why does he say to do these things? approaches to your brother first and to try to get him to a point of repentance. Well, I'm going to quote William MacDonald here on this regarding the question, why not just forgive the party and move on? Why do it this way? Here's what he says. The answer, the answer is that there are stages in the administration of forgiveness as follows. When a brother wrongs me or sins against me, I should forgive him immediately in my heart. Ephesians 4.32 That frees me from a bitter, unforgiving spirit and leaves the matter on his shoulders. So let's look at Ephesians 4.32. Well, she's actually starting verse uh, 31. Ephesians 4. Again on the board. When a brother wrongs me or sins against me, I should forgive him immediately in my heart. 
That frees me from a bitter, unforgiving spirit and leaves the matter on his shoulders. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So again on the board, the first step is when a brother wrongs me or sins against me, I should forgive him immediately in my heart. No hesitation. Go to God. You know, do whatever you got to do. Give that person the same type of attitude in your heart that God gave you. And that will free you from any bitterness or an unforgiving spirit and leaves the matter on his shoulders. Number two, while I have forgiven him in my heart, I do not yet tell him that he's forgiven. It would not be righteous to administer forgiveness publicly until he has repented. So I am obligated to go to him and rebuke him in love, hoping to lead him to confession. Luke 17, 3. Again, while I have forgiven him in my heart, I do not yet tell him that he is forgiven. It would not be righteous to administer forgiveness publicly until he has repented. So I am obligated to go to him and rebuke him in love, hoping to lead him to confession. Luke 17, 3. And then the third point that Mr. McDonald makes is, as soon as he apologizes and confesses his sin, I tell him that he is forgiven. Luke 17, 4. So let's read this passage again. Go back to Luke 17, verse 3. So we can see what exactly what this is referring to. Again, Jesus said, be on your guard. Interesting way to start it, isn't it? Be on your guard. Serious issue. Be alert. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, then forgive him. So this is what we see again in the Lord's parable on forgiveness in Matthew 18. There is a repentance by the guilty party before forgiveness is granted publicly. As MacDonald said, it's the righteous way to do it. So back to our main emphasis in this parable, which is the need to show forgiveness and mercy to allow God's love to flow through us freely. Go again to Matthew 18, verse 29. I mean, the Spirit is trying to set us all free. Both the one who violates someone else and the one who is in the position to forgive. And by the way, isn't it funny how we always think of ourselves as the one who have to do the forgiving? We're always getting hurt. You hurt people too, right? We all hurt people, sometimes inadvertently, but we've all done it and we all will do it. So we can be on either side of this equation. Matthew 18, 29. 
So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. See, he was repentant. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. And this brings us to our last point for the evening on the board. The evil of the flesh. When our brother comes up to us asking for forgiveness with a repentant heart, it is evil in God's eyes to reject him. That is when our own hearts need repentance. And God will see to it that we see our error. Even if it's very harshly in Matthew 18.35. Again, when our brother comes up to us asking for forgiveness with a repentant heart, it is evil in God's eyes to reject him. That's when our own hearts need repentance. And God will see to it that we see our error. You know, people think of things like murder when they see the word evil, right? They don't think of many other things beside murder. That's obviously evil. But how many people realize that an unforgiving heart is evil to the Lord? You could act like a nice guy. You could say you forgive somebody, uh, maybe even in front of other people to maybe even make yourself look good in front of other people, who knows? But you harbor bitterness in your heart. And in God's eyes, that is evil. And we all do it at times. We've all done it at times. The flesh is just nasty. It's nasty. And it's not always overt like murder. It's nasty. And it holds on to things to our own pain and suffering. The flesh justifies. It pretends even to a point of looking good to others. It can act religious. So may that never be with us as believers in this church. Amen? I mean, may, that, may, that, may we never let it go that far. And if we're in it, cry out to the Lord. Let the tears flow if you need to. Go to that person on your knees, whatever. Be humble. Get it out of the way. And stop being arrogant. Holding back God's love from other people, especially in your own family. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this privilege of going through your word and seeing your instructions on forgiveness. Father, we ask that you humble our hearts, regardless of which situation we're in. Help us to be humble before you and do the right thing according to your word. Help us let go of any bitterness, Father. Help us be free by obeying your commands in humility. And help us look back to the love that you had for us first, despite our sin. Father, help us bring this good news out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.